Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Alini Silva will be joining Marianne. Alini is the co-director of Creature Kind, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to encourage Christians to recognize faith-based reasons for caring about the well-being of fellow animal creatures used for food and to take practical action in response. You know how much I love interviews about religion. I really do. Yeah. I always find them fascinating. And Alini is do and Creature Kind are doing some great work. I should Give one heads up. I think probably all of our listeners are familiar with the fact that we that we ordinarily bring people on who are very pro veganism. You know, particularly when we're doing an interview about about farm animals and agriculture. Not necessarily when we're doing an interview about another topic such as wildlife. But we love that vegan, you know, full perspective. And Alini is definitely a passionate vegan. I'm not, <laughs> don't, no hesitations about that. I did realize during the interview, and this was my fault, because I probably should have paid a little bit closer attention to the mission, that I was a little caught off guard about the mission being also supportive of, of welfare reforms. And, you know, we are not opposed to welfare reforms by any means. I, you know, if if people want to treat their animals better than they are already treating them, that's that's fine. But we don't really support humane agriculture as a as a solution. So I may have overreacted a little bit when Aline said that because like I said, she did catch me off guard. But but so just just a heads up. Other than that, well, even including that, it was an inter- I, th- I feel like it led to an interesting discussion. Yeah, I listened as well, and I thought it was a very interesting discussion. And I thought you were kind of hilarious when you realized what was going <laughs> what was going on. I don't think you totally realize how scary you can be sometimes. It's one of the reasons that we love you. I did not get the feeling that Alini was even vaguely scared by me. So I don't know. No, no, you're. I mean, but the listeners might be. <laughs> But anyway, so yeah, that's what's going on with that. I also just want to add that I'm I'm an atheist, which I talked about, and I love the religious-based conversations that you have. I loved the recent conversation you had with Father Massimo. We actually heard from another atheist who listens. He's a flock member and said that was like one of her favorite interviews recently. We live in a very re- religious-based society. Therefore, I think it's fascinating to unpack some of these issues. Fascinating and important because that is where the vast majority of people get their moral compass. So it's an incredibly important conversation. And and like I said, Creature Kind is doing, and I certainly don't want mean to imply that, that, that they are only uh, supporting humane farms. They are also, of course, strongly in support of veganism. So on this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Alini. And if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month, just $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. We have some really cool guests, uh, recent podcast guests. Join us for an intimate Q&A and we chat about activism and about life in general. We actually just had one this past week with Monica Chen of Factory Farming Awareness Coalition. I love her. Yeah, no, this was great. It was, it was such an inspiring conversation. Everyone had such cool questions, and and I just 
I really loved that interview we had recently. So it's it's such a great next layer. Actually, Monica is also a flock member and recently described these first flock Friday Zoom calls as a book club, but a podcast. She said it better than that. But I loved that. Like we're we're just kind of gonna all discuss the, these issues together so that we're not only alone with our thoughts about it. And, and you know, this will be a cool discussion too, though your interview that you're having today. I, I'd love to chat with our flock about, about it. So if you are a member of the flock, check out that flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can set up one-on-one conversations with me. Also, if you'd like to, you can email info at ourhenhouse.org and we'll send you the information to set up a, a one-on-one with me. So before we get to our interview today, let's discuss that New York Times video that came out recently, because I think that both of us were just gobsmacked that this happened. The name of the uh, video was Meet the People Getting Paid to Kill Our Planet. I mean, that's, that alone sounds like a joke title that I, as like a, you know, quote unquote, radical vegan, would it would would give to a video jokingly, but this was real. And it was in the New York Times and it was basically all about big ag and how it's just total bullshit when you see these like small idyllic farms in these little commercials, these pictures of how idyllic uh, animal agriculture is. It could not be further from the truth, which of course anyone listening to this already knows that these are factories. It interviewed... Peter Linner, who is a lawyer at Earth Justice, and they just talked about how the animal agriculture systems are completely destroying the planet from from the cow burps, of course, to the waste that have to go into lagoons because there's nowhere else for them to go. And sometimes those seep into the nearby streams and rivers and talked about the grassland becoming farmland. And and the thing that I found most startling about the video was that they were like, why aren't we angry about big ag? Why are we angry at big oil and not big ag? Got a little excited, didn't you? Well, I am angry and I feel validated by the New York Times. Thank you, New York Times. I've been saying this for years. Why haven't you been listening? <laughs> I am truly gobsmacked that this article, not article, video, Featured video, New York Times, like what happened? Who started listening? Like who started listening to us? Who started listening? There isn't anything in here about the, the welfare of the animals. It's all environmental stuff. There isn't anything in here about health either. It's all environmental. It's largely focused on climate change issues, though not exclusively. It also talks about the pollution of, of air and water in ways that, you know, are, are not directly influencing the climate, but are poisoning our land. And the the focus on the lobbying, just making it completely clear that they think these guys are completely full of crap, literally, it was unbelievable. Right. I, I heard, too, that, you know, it, th- there was solely a focus on cows. That was the only kind of meat that they were talking about. But I've been told that they're, they're going to come out with another one on big chicken, like, which wow. is just like, what? So maybe the world's waking up folks. Uh, yeah. And and at least the New York Times is. And, I, you know, the New York Times, it has its pluses, it has its minuses. But one of its enormous minuses has always been that it just does not cover this topic. I want to give a shout out to the editor of this, Adam Westbrook, and the executive producer, Adam B. Ellick, two Adams. 
just, I don't know. I, I just think that they probably are the ones who made this happen. I, I also want to give a shout out to Jennifer Jaquette, who's been on the podcast, of course. She was one of the featured, there, there were just, you know, clips with a, a variety of people, just three people really on the side of sanity. Peter Lehner, as you mentioned, who's with Earth Justice, Jennifer Jaquette, and, and of course, Cory Booker, who you could see how personally, completely devastated he is by this issue. It just really, like the emotion really came through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciated that juxtaposition that they kept showing. And they they had, you know, there were quotes in it I was jotting down as I was watching it that said, just pure propaganda, like things like that. And you know, so it's a 15 minute video, high production value. We'll link to it in our show notes. And thank you, New York Times. This was a good moment, something good for us to point to. So another thing we can point to, which we'll put in show notes too, I just want to give a shameless plug to an article that I wrote that then got a video that went along with it that is called When Being Vegan Just Isn't Enough, How and Why I'm Making My House Net Zero. And I published it on vegnews.com. It hasn't really gotten picked up very well because there's just a lot more energy that the that the internet machine gives to listicles that focus on you know what eyeliner you should buy or what what fast food restaurant has a new burger like people aren't really that interested it's harder to get attention to stories about what's happening to animals than it is to to stories about eyeliner and it's harder to get stories about the climate it's even harder than than at least in a vegan magazine than what's happening to animals like yeah it it it's a terrific article i highly highly recommend it to anyone it's very personal it talks about what you and your wife have done to on a personal level to just get your home completely uh, as as ecologically friendly as you are, it is possible for you to do. And you know, we're all talking about the art of the possible here, which is great. That's what you need to talk about, not the perfect. There are just so many parallels, I think, to going vegan here that that it's both systemic change is important and personal change is important, and they work together. Just what you have been doing. And reading about it on my part has inspired me to do to to get going and and do more for my house as well, and then that makes you more focused on on seeking systemic change. So it all works together. And there's a lot of stuff in this article that unless you are a real pro on this issue, you're not going to know anything about. And it's super interesting. Thanks. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about it here partly because it I knew it wasn't going to perform that well. And uh, usually, I don't write things that. I think we'll just fail in the in the in the world of internet. But sometimes we have to do it anyway, you know, and like do our best to get the information out there. So who knows? Maybe there will be another another breath of life to in this article. By the way, I don't even think you saw this yet, because right before I met you here in this in this recording room, I published my newsletter, my Substack, which you people can find at jasminesinger.substack.com. And there's no E on Jasmine. And I just sort of write about writing and activism and how I'm approaching all of that, especially from a place of self-growth and self-awareness, hopefully. I wrote an article called The Consequences of Energy Use, Your House and Your Mindset. And it basically starts by talking about that article about net zeroing my home and then just kind of the line keeps getting drawn to how I'm also trying to reassess what 
kind of toxic energy output I have in my mindset as well. And I'm trying to sort of approach these things from like a one-two punch. And so anyone who's interested in sort of looking inward, you might like my Substack, which sort of draws those lines. But anyway, that's a lot of shameless plugs from me. I don't have anything to plug. <laughs> How's your class going at Cornell? You're teaching animal law at Cornell. That's something to plug. I am excited because this week is the first week I will be actually going there. The first uh, the first part of the semester was remote, but now they have calmed down and everybody is thinking, well, maybe we can actually do this. So I'm actually going to be going there. So that's super exciting. That is very exciting. Well, you'll have to report back. I taught one of my favorite classes. I always start with companion animals and people wouldn't think that would be one of my favorites. But but the very first class I, I teach is on tort recovery. Like, you know, what, what can you do legally if somebody kills your dog or kills your cat, uh, whether it's accidentally or intentionally? I, I just think it's a great way to begin a class where people don't know a lot about how the law relates to animals. Because the answer is basically you can't do much of anything. There are a few exceptions to that, but very few. It's a really interesting topic, and there are a lot of cases. And it, it starts the year off well in showing how ludicrous animal law can be. It's interesting to me to think about students taking a class that is sort of limited in its scope, because I think that it creates a lot more conversation points like well, what are the limitations? What are the problems with animal law? What could animal law potentially look like? I love that. I think that that's really cool. And I look forward to you continuing to tell us how this class is going. But for now, let's get to our interview because I'm I'm looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. Alini Silva is the co-director of Creature Kind. Previously, she served for over a decade as a local parish pastor of rural and farming populations in Kansas, Missouri, and Colorado. Alini shares herself as a queer, Black, and Indigenous immigrant of Brazil to the U.S., who chooses not to eat non-human animals. Her fellow worshipers are God. I love that. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our hen house, Alini. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you all. I am excited too, and I don't know a lot about Creature Kind, though we have had David Clough on the podcast in the past. I know he's affiliated with it, but I really, really want to know more. And all right, I'm going to just take something off the website. According to the website, Creature Kind is a religious nonprofit organization whose mission is to, quote, encourage Christians to recognize faith-based reasons for caring about the well-being of fellow animal creatures used for food and to take practical action in response. And I love all of that. And before we talk about the faith-based reasons, I'd love to jump in and just talk about the practical actions and start there. First, tell us about the Creature Kind commitment. Who is this commitment for and what are people committing to when they, when they sign on? 
The creature kind commitment is for communities of Christians. So be it a church, a seminary community, a parachurch organization that does an assessment and a survey of the needs of their communities when it comes to the welfare of animals. And then they decide these are the commitments that we will make and creature kind will help us with so that we can ensure the animals that God created are well taken care of. It could be universities taking action to be default veg, for instance, which is one of our programs, meaning from as a default, they will offer vegetables and plant-based foods in cafeterias. And if folks request animal products, then they are happy to provide that as long as they know it comes from a high welfare source. Or it can be a small church that has potlucks every month. And then now they have decided that all of their potlucks and all of their meals will be plant-based meals. And so they come to us with that commitment and ask for help. How do we communicate to the rest of our church that we believe having a plant-based diet potluck gathering is one of the faithful steps we can take in caring for the welfare of animals? When an organization does sign on to this commitment, who is that usually led by? Well, of course, they're all different organizations. Are they all Christian organizations? Is it a specifically yes. Christian effort? And so even if it's a university, it would be a Christian or university that you're talking yes. about. Okay. Where does the motivation usually come from? Sometimes it comes from the lonely vegan at a church or students at a seminary or at a university. Sometimes it comes because they have heard one of us talk at their church or they have run across our website in the materials that we have. And then they go back to a committee in their church or university or local para church organization and have the discussion of having read or heard this information about engaging new ways of thinking about animals. Do we think that our faith has anything to say about this? And can we act on some of the things that our faith says? And then after the committee decides locally what they would do. Okay. So they've made this commitment. And one of the, one of the pieces of commitment is, as you said, to, to consume plant-based foods rather than animal foods, maybe not totally, but Hopefully, totally. So what is the next step? How do you help them fulfill that commitment? So the first step, right? Reducing the consumption of animal products. I think there is a really big stereotype, stigma, and misinformation that plant-based foods are hard to access or they are even more expensive than consuming an animal diet. And so the first thing that we do is to educate folks on actually consuming plant-based meals can be more sustainable and affordable for church communities. And a lot of church communities budgeting for things like this or any program is a struggle because they um, are donation-based. And so showing them that the first step, look, these are the companies that you can um, link up with that are local to you, who have the highest welfare, that have the lowest cost to you, that will treat their employees right. That's the first thing. Then the second is if they indeed decide that they will welcome animal products, then we give them a list of organizations either locally or surrounding their area where they know that the way the animals are farmed 
the animals are able to. Grow. You're really not a vegan organization. You you don't promote veganism. We promote the high welfare of animals consumed for food. Does God care for the welfare of animals? Now, our staff is totally vegan. Most of the people on our board are very vegan, but much like Jesus, we don't impose our beliefs upon anyone else. And we cannot faithfully say that veganism is a diet prescribed by God. No, yeah. But we can talk about ways okay. that consuming plant-based diet in the world that we live today is a more faithful way to live out our beliefs. A plant-based diet that does not rely on the oppression of fellow worshipers of God in order for us to be fed, to obtain nutritious foods, etc. Okay, and I just want to assure my listeners, I, we normally we had we had planned this interview on the assumption that that you did promote specifically veganism. Since that's part of your mission, I'm certainly interested to find out how that plays out, and I just want people to know that that the podcast has not changed its mission. <laughs> High welfare is just not, I think it, you know, it's a joke and not something we, we at all promote. But that, let's not get stuck in that conversation. Let's get stuck in on a little bit more of the methods that you use. And I, I know you have a six-week course and this must be part of your educational effort. Can you tell us a little bit about how people use it? Yes, absolutely. Um, anyone can go onto our website and download all of the materials. We actually have it in French and a UK version. Also, we have it in a Portuguese version and a US version. So all of the videos and the materials can be found online and anyone can lead either in a small group setting in their Sunday school or in a campus organization. Basically, we take folks through six questions about animals in the biblical text and how we are called to take care and coexist on this earth with animals. It can be used in, I think, in, in several different settings. And how would you suggest, I'm just going to go back to that question a little bit, because what we're always trying to do here is help people who want to become more active for animals do so. And so the people listening right now probably are, are vegan and would want to promote that. Is there work that they could do through Creature Kind that would not be promoting quote unquote high welfare animal slaughter systems? Yes, I would say actually the course itself does that. And the course itself does not promote either veganism or high welfare system. It actually is a critical course and line of questioning for people to survey their own ways that they are contributing to factory farming and the oppression of animals. And then at the end, asks them and invites them to make a decision about how they might change their diet and begin making steps towards the change that is very much necessary, right? I understand from your website that you work with pastors and, and clergy who are open to incorporating animals into their pastoral work and, and, I, and I assume into their life and their personal practices. When you find these people, are they nervous about, about approaching their congregations with this kind of thing? And how do you advise them to do so? I would say we have two kinds of clergy person that comes to us. Sometimes we have clergy people who are not vegan or are not into animal welfare, but they have parishioners who have come to them and said, this is a huge concern for me. And I feel like you're not preaching about it. You're not preaching about one of the biggest evils of our time, 
please do a better job. And so they come to us asking for resources on how to be better clergy, on how to be more relevant preachers. And we then provide them with the resources, with biblical texts, with academic literature that will help them think about this issue critically and be better clergy persons. And then we also have the clergy people who sometimes are the lonely vegans, are the one in their congregation, and they feel lonely and they feel like their livelihood may be at stake, right? Because their salary, how they get compensated is donation-based. And the majority of the people who belong to churches come from generations and generations of farmers. And so for a clergy person to stand in the pulpit and say, what you are doing and what you are consuming is wrong is also a huge threat to the livelihood of generations of people who have carried this way of farming in their in their family for forever. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, even if you're not a preacher, we all know what it feels like to have people think that you're preaching at them. And so I could, so how does it go for such people? Like have you seen successes? Yes, absolutely. We have a group for clergy where we come together and we discuss what has been helpful in your organization, what has been helpful for you, how have you brought up this topic to them. And what we see is we would like for it to be an overnight success for the clergy to take the conversation to their parishioners and for the change to be immediate. But what we see is that over years with continuing conversation and curiosity, they are able to arrive at a point where the potlucks of the churches are no longer meat-based, right? Now they're plant-based. We are able to see that after a couple of years of conversation, now they have a Sunday school course that talks about animals and how consuming animals is just causing so much destruction to animals, the earth, and other people who are forced to work in the industry. And it also works via offering them encouragement and by showing them that they are not the only Christian who believe that God cares for the welfare and the life of the animal. Because there's a lot of animosity in in a lot of Christianity, and a lot of Christians still hold the belief that God gave me this animal to consume, and so whatever evil this animal goes through, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, there's and you bring up the fact that there's a lot of animosity among Christian um, sects or divisions, and that is putting it mildly. Do you see your role as as speaking to particular types of congregations? more liberal, more left thinking, more open to social justice issues? Or do you really, is, is this more of a universal kind of uh, approach where you have a whole wide variety of people who might have very different perspectives? And I have found that animal issues are an odd thing. You know, people who care about animals can kind of come from any perspective. It is one of the few issues that doesn't fall clearly into those lines. Do you experience that in the people who come to you for advice? Yes, absolutely. And we we say that we meet people where they are. So whether you are liberal or conservative or anywhere in between, if you come to us with questions, we will meet you where you are in the journey and we will work with you. And as an organization, we work with all kinds of Christians. We work with very conservative Christians and very liberal progressive Christians. And what we have found is that all Christian sects are very good at ignoring the evils that take place in factory farming. And they are 
you know, I will say that leftists and progressives are very good at using the excuse of, I am so good at social justice with other things. I can't just focus on animals. You know, my time is already consumed with advocating for other things. And to those folks, we say, you know, actually the farming of animal is also a human issue. And here's how it is affecting other humans, not only who live in the community surrounding factory farms, folks that work in the industry itself, and it is destroying the earth that we're trying to change and is the lead cause of climate change, right? So with them, we're able to talk about some of these other things. With more conservative folks, it's more of a deconstruction of their theology that believes in a God that dominates and conquers and owns and commodifies things towards a, a theology that is more inclusive, compassionate, and restorative so that even we can have consideration not only for the people who are at the table, but those who are on our table and serving our table as well. We've talked a little bit about clergy and how they would approach their congregation and how it's a long-term project and how they're scared about losing their jobs. And all of that seems very real. But I imagine a lot of people who approach you or who want advice I've certainly heard of so many people in this situation. They belong to a particular church, but they have absolutely no reason to believe that any of the leadership, uh, whether in their individual uh, church or or the overarching bureaucracy of their denomination, uh, is going to be open to these issues. So what kind of advice do you give them to approach the powers that be? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of different ways. Two years ago, we started a fellowship and we started the fellowship specifically for this reason, because we wanted to work with as many denominations and church leaders as possible on this subject, that they were frustrated that they were going to the leadership of their church and not getting anything back, right? And so to these folks, we help them do a survey and an assessment of where are people's self-interest and where can my self-interest with animals and advocacy intersect with their interests and then we can work together. And we have found that to be extremely successful. The first year we had folks from France, uh, Australia and the United States, folks who were able to engage their communities who were not interested in the issue of animal welfare or veganism at all, and now have led courses, denominational-wide courses on this issue and have seen people respond positively. A person last year who was able to, she was the co-owner of a cafe in Australia. They were not plant-based at all. And after being with us and having the tools, doing the intersectional study on how to breach this conversation with other people, the cafe changed all of their items of the menu towards a plant-based menu. So that's that's been really exciting for us. We also had folks who were able to lead a food-friendly challenge on their campus and talk about what people were consuming. Oh, can you, can you just take a step back and explain what a food-friendly challenge is? Yes, absolutely. A food-friendly challenge is when folks go to their community. And we actually have a toolkit on our website for anybody who would like to take a better look at it. But helping members of their church community, of their campus, choose 
plant-based meals, starting conversations about Christianity and farmed animals on their campus, and then talking to staff, faculty, folks who are providing the cafeteria food and other foods that are communal foods for, for folks. And so you make a commitment after you talk to folks to about encouraging them to have an animal-free meal. And then you say, okay, we accept the challenge. And in the month of January, for example, we will, we will reach having consumed a thousand vegan meals or a thousand plant-based meals. And last year we had a college campus that did 5,000 meals and their goal was, I think, in the 500s and they were able to multiply that by a lot. So that's really exciting for us. We are also, right now, um, our fellowship, we have folks that are in Zimbabwe, Canada, Brazil, and the United States, you know, and it's important to note that Brazil as a country is the second largest producer of animals for food in the world and the second largest exporter of that. And having Christians that are talking, that are leading lectures on the subject is, is huge for us. And we're also seeing some results there. So how do you actually, taking a step back to, to motivations and not just the practical actions, we were talking a bit about what a difficult job this can be for people who do care about animals to go to their uh, church or their denomination. And you, I think, made the point that whether they're on the left or the right, they're, they're not taking good positions regarding animals. How do you account for that? that so many individuals of faith and so many institutions have just left consideration for animals off the agenda. I mean, it, it seems to me, to, and I imagine to you, to be a fundamental moral issue. How, how does religion just leave it out? I think actually religion has never left it out. I think that how it has been taught has been left out. And I think how it has been engaged, it has been left out. And I don't think animals is the only thing that the church does a good job at not participating in, right? There's a lot of like racial issues that the church would rather look the other way. There's a lot of poverty issues also that the church would rather look the other way. And as an example for that is, you know, we are happy to engage in charity work, meaning we're happy to feed the homeless, but we will never question the system that is creating poverty so that homeless folks will not no longer exist. So I think it is an issue of, of actually engaging with systems and dismantling the systems that cause oppression versus teaching people dogma and belief and issues that are heaven and hell. And, uh, and do you think there's hope for that to change? I mean, is religion going to change what it does? <laughs> I think religion with the big R is yeah, also a spreading. Yes. When I say religion, it's a, it covers a lot of ground, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, but I think that religion with a big R is also a system that has been responsible for a lot of oppression. So it may continue to thrive in that way, but I do see a lot of hope in people who are challenging the beliefs that they grew up with, that are challenging the religious status quo and saying, actually, this doesn't make sense for today's world. I still want to be a person of faith. I still want to be a person of high morals, but is there a better way? And in asking that question, is there a better way? Folks are finding that issues like 
animals and the way that we treat them today is not okay. Whether or not we consume animals, right? Um, we are finding folks that are seeing the links between the farming of animals and climate change. We are seeing folks that are seeing the link between the oppression of immigrants and factory farms and slaughterhouses. And so I do see a lot of hope in the people that are challenging their religion, are challenging the status quo, are questioning beliefs that have been instilled in them and deconstructing that and then reaching out to people who have had experience in deconstructing that theology and then reframing it for today's world. I do see hope in that. So I know you do a lot of talks and sermons. Actually, I don't know what's going on, you know, since COVID, but I know that is part of part of what you do. Can you tell us about the topics you speak on and, and where you were invited to speak? Yes. Over COVID, all of the things that we are doing still is virtual. So we are not accepting any in-person gathering at this time. But we show up in college, seminary, university classrooms. We give talks depending on the class. So just at the end of last year, we were invited to talk at a sustainability course as a seminary course. And people are like, well, what does sustainability have to do with Christianity and the farming of animals? We talk about those things. Then we educate them and we give them resources on that. We have been invited to talk at panels for queer Christians and how queer spirituality and folks that are queer are out in the world experiencing animals and nature. And so we talk about queer Christianity, animals, how those things intersect. We use the Bible, we use resources, and we teach them that there is a place for them to advocate for animals too. And we also get invited to give sermons in a lot of churches. And depending on the church and actually depending on the lectionary reading for that week, and the lectionary is just a set of scriptures, both from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, that give guidance to the preacher on what to preach on, what text to preach on. Last year, my last sermon, my most recent sermon was an Advent sermon where I talked about Christians and believers of Jesus participating in the ushering of the peaceable kingdom on our earth. And I talked about the fact that we are still living in a pandemic that is caused by zoonotic diseases. I talked about how much evidence we have for knowing where zoonotic diseases come from. And I talked about holding our leaders, both religious and non-religious leaders, accountable for the fact that we're not trying to prevent this evil from happening anymore. We're just preparing for the next one, choosing profit over the well-being of all beings on earth and basically pledging our allegiance to the system versus the redemption that we say our Christ brings upon earth. And I also point to me, which is a narrative fact, right? That in the beginning of our narrative, in the beginning of our text, we see two kinds of being there. We see creator and creatures. We are not seen separately from other creatures. And so how may we coexist on this earth without depending on the oppression of one another, especially the dominating and creating subcategories of beings, which include in this world, people of color and animals. 
the question I was going to ask you as you were answering that, but then maybe you actually answered it, was that a lot of the issues you've brought up like are hugely important, but they're basically intersectional issues with the animal issue because there are so many. There are so many overlaps between oppression of animals and oppression of people. And you mentioned zoonotic disease and uh, immigrant rights and slaughterhouses and climate change, and the list goes on and on. But do you also, like say, say it was fine, <laughs> say that the, what we do to animals didn't harm humans in any way, even though, of course, it does enormously. Do you believe that that Christianity, as you see it, would still condemn the slaughter of animals for food? I'm going to answer this, I guess, in two ways, okay? So for me, my own personal beliefs, as I understand the narrative, is that animals are my fellow worshipers of God. And as such, I choose not to eat them or cause harm to them. But that is me. That is how I have understood Christianity as a system. When we look at our narratives, I cannot justify and say there is no consumption of animals there. But the way that it happened and even the ways that were we were prescribed to do so held very, very, very high concern for the life and death of the animal in the same way that it held concern for the life and death of a human. Even if it was okay, personally, I can't see myself consuming my fellow worshipers of God but I can see that even when it was allowed, God being very particular and very, very picky about how we were supposed to do it, when we were supposed to do it, and always with the highest concern for the animal, always. Christianity is also practiced by many people who have very different views of animals. You know, as we pointed out before, different views on, on loads of things. Do you nevertheless feel that you are in community with Christians who see these things very differently? Is there an overarching community of Christianity on animal issues and, you know, perhaps on other issues as well? I think so. I think so. I think creature kind and even outside of us, but we are a part of creating that overarching community of Christians who hold deep concern for what animals are going through today. And that unites us. I can't think of many other Christian organizations that are doing the kind of thing that we're doing. But also, you know, even when we look at um, at the biblical text, it's not one single narrative. There are many disagreements in there too. And even in those disagreements, and even in the holding of different beliefs, it was still a Christian community that was based on compassion, selflessness, the dismantling of power, justice, and liberation of those who suffered most, the marginalized. And so I would say those who I um, am in community with at Christian community at large still hold that belief, even if they don't think animals should be their main concern, we still believe that our, our main concern should be the marginalized, those on the bottom of hierarchies, both in the past and today. Well, it sounds like Creature Kind is doing some good work out there. So thank you so much for, for sharing with us. 
your beliefs and what you're doing about your beliefs. I mean, sometimes people have beliefs and they don't take them into practice, but the practice is, is really the important part, isn't it? Yes. Yes, I agree. So thanks, Alini, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety's arising. Our first story is a doozy. It's real. A number of people said it to me. It's really, it's actually pretty funny. Uh, It's from the New York Post, which, you know, if you're not familiar with it, it's a Rupert Rupert Murdoch-owned rag. Vegan Eric Adams tries to force his diet on kids. Haven't they suffered enough? This is by one Kyle Smith. He's an opinion columnist. And he starts off by saying, actually starts off by insulting New Jersey, which is kind of an odd thing. Like jumbo shrimp, proud New Jerseyan or Democratic Party moderate. Vegan dining is an obvious oxymoron. The vegan part of the dish is the garbage that's left after you throw out the real food. As you can see, he's not going to mince words here. So it just goes on in that vein. New York City public school students are being forced to go vegan on Fridays, thanks to our new vegan mayor, Eric Adams. And you might have heard that story that, yes, there's a new policy in New York City that the New York City public school lunches are going to be vegan on Fridays. That is not every day, but, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful beginning. And and, uh, according to Kyle... This is a gag-inducing new policy, and it's what they are doing is swapping out food for colon blow roughage and mashed yeast. Is that what they're serving? He also seems to think it's a religious war. And he says that Eric, like Bill Clinton, another member of the militant vegan brigades, used to be fat, got thin, and is now an evangelist for the cause. Of course, if you know anything about Eric Adams' story, which you could have heard like a couple of years ago on our hen house, it wasn't just that his weight was high. It's that he had really potentially fatal and blindness inducing diabetes, very, very bad diabetes, which he did manage to reverse with his vegan diet. Super, super healthy vegan diet, I might add. Good for you, Eric, says Kyle. But don't force your cauliflower patties and cheeseless tacos on the kids. It's been a horrible two years for them. Haven't they suffered enough? Eating vegan food is really not that that great a burger. There is a great picture here. It's obviously a Photoshop picture of this of this child screaming in terror. Then a picture of a a burger bun on a school cafeteria tray, and it's filled with raw cauliflower. I wonder if that's what they're serving. Probably not. His whole religious thing, like, it seems to have something to do with the fact that he grew up in a mostly Catholic town in Massachusetts where they had to eat, have meatless Fridays in schools. Then, you know, he was really upset about that. I, I don't know. Like, there's no use trying to figure, figure this out. He does say that vegan pizza is otherwise known as toast. <laughs> That's actually a pretty funny comment. 
And more to the point, it's become an increasingly disturbing characteristic of the Prague army that any derivation of live and let live must die. Uh, you know, this is the most ironic part of this whole story that that he thinks he's defending a live and let live ethos when he's actually defending a let's kill all the animals ethos. But we're all familiar with that nonsense. This is supposed to be the country where you can do your own religion. And I pray for a bacon double cheeseburger. It's an interesting God that he's worshiping. It does bring up the fact that the reason they're doing this is for the health of the children. But the fact is that kids and adults as well, let's face it, like junk food. Uh, you know, that's why it sells. People don't buy it for any reason other than that it's delicious. And, and it appeals to all of our worst instincts. But some of those instincts are very, very strong. And if they, uh, you know, we'll just have to see, like, how are they going to make this food both healthy and appealing to kids who ha have previously been served and are still being served on other days, probably pretty junky food in their school cafeterias, uh, you know, having to compete with that and still be healthy. Well, like I said, this will be interesting to keep an eye on. Healthy food is not, you know, uh, like if you've ever had kids, I mean, I've never had kids, but, you know, I've heard about them. <laughs> Getting them to eat healthy food isn't an easy project all the time. All right. I'll get off of that hobby horse. You, you should excuse the expression and get to our next article. This is from meetingplace.com. And the worm discussion is back. This is from the For the Birds column by Christy Alvarado, who works in the poultry industry. She starts off by talking about some story from when she was a kid. I don't remember this, but there was some rumor that there were earthworms in hot dogs. You know, it turned out not to be true. I don't know. Probably it was true. I thought that topic was behind us, but guess what? Here it comes again. This time it's about a quote unquote worm in the breast meat. All right. What she's talking about here is so disgusting that, you know, if, if you're eating at the moment, maybe you want to listen to this later. We are all familiar with white striping and woody breast by now. I'm actually not familiar with white striping and woody breast, whatever they are, they sound pretty awful. These conditions have been around for a while. A couple of years ago, it was spaghetti meat. Not familiar with that either, but it sure sounds gross. But now she's worried about a new one. Now we are reading about the long and thin worm in the breast. And for clarification, this quote unquote worm is not really a worm at all. It is a blood vessel. Like the, the whole idea behind this, this column is that while it may be disgusting to have a worm in your food, it's not at all disgusting to have a blood vessel in your food, which I guess it should be expected that you would have a blood vessel. Personally, I still find it disgusting. And personally, I think even meat eaters do not like to be reminded of things like blood vessel. So as she points out, this is quote unquote, causing some consumer complaints. Interesting, right? What it really is, uh, there's some new condition that's happening to chickens, probably as a result of, you know, the horrors that are inflicted upon them. And the arterial wall of this blood vessel is, which has always been there, but it was always removed in the past. But now the arterial wall is thicker and sturdier. So it's not being removed by the usual techniques, whatever it is they do to these poor animals' bodies. What is causing this condition, she asks? Scientists are researching the answer. Yeah, that's such a good use of science, isn't it? Uh, for us as consumers, we can continue to go about our daily lives eating chicken. It is not a worm. It is a blood vessel. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. 
Gross. All right, another uh, food safety column. Well, that wasn't really a safety column as much as a gross column. But this is the food safety column. This is a resolute focus from the Food Safe and Sound column by Mindy Brashears, who used to be the undersecretary for food safety. And she thinks that it is time to, quote unquote, get real with some of the greatest unseen threats we have to safe food supply. These aren't the obvious ones like pathogens. No, she's talking about a trend, a thought trend. There is a trend, if not a solid perspective for some, that science isn't real and data can't be trusted. Now, this is certainly true, and it certainly is a problem. There is an increase, I mean, as we all know, with all the vaccine controversy and so many other things, there is a perception on the part of too many people that you can't trust science at all. I think that that some scientific enterprises are kind of reaping what they have sown because we have been sold so many bills of goods about what our food supply is and about so many other things as well, about drugs being good for us, like opioids and all of, there have been so many wrong stories based on bad information that have been fed to the American public that it's not surprising that some people have just completely lost faith in science. But, you know, as we all know, there's good science and there's bad science, and, and it's hard, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Anyway, I'm getting off the track here. She is concerned about this, this idea that some people don't believe science, some people don't believe data. And one of the most alarming experiences she had while at the agency occurred when meeting with consumer advocacy groups. And what she's talking about is that they, when she was with the government, they, we had some quote-unquote cool ideas uh, working with various companies to have a long-term impact on food safety behavior. Beginning, and the companies were not food companies. We we're talking about things like Disney and Amazon. They wanted to start educational programs about food safety. And they wanted to do this with children and carry on to adults based on the purchase of a raw meat or poultry product. Some, she says, not all of the consumer advocacy groups opposed this vehemently. There was insistence by some of the groups that consumers had no responsibility for food safety and the food should be free from pathogens when it arrived to the consumer. There is no science in this approach, and it overlooks an important point in the supply chain where risks can be mitigated. Now, I think that what she is confronting here is one of the fundamental problems that the meat industry faces. It's that its products, meat and poultry, the flesh of dead animals, are prone to very, very serious contamination with pathogens. Uh, not all products are, are prone to that. Uh, as we all know, some, some vegetables have been guilty of, uh, if you can hold a vegetable guilty, of carrying pathogens, usually because they were produced in fields near either where manure was, was sprayed onto those fields or near factory farms. But it is a really good thing, I think, that consumers are saying no, because I'm not sure this is something the industry can fix. And that's, that's kind of what she's referring to. You know, meat and poultry, when it comes into your house, is just going to be full of pathogens. Like they can try to reduce it as much as they can. But if consumers want clean food, meat and poultry is not the direction to head in. So she feels a quote-unquote responsibility to describe these charges as a loss of respect for the scientific community stemming from consumers' experiences with the pandemic, 
which they carry into their opinions about food safety. I think the pandemic may have heightened this problem for the food industry, but I think it was there all along. I don't think people like the fact that it's up to them to cook this food to a level where they can kill all these pathogens. Because, the, you know, I, when I was a kid, we would have, have uh, meat rare. We didn't die. It's a lot more dangerous today than it was then. Sorry, it was, of course, very dangerous to the animals all the time. And I am sorry that I ever ate any of it. But the fact that they can't clean up their product, I think, is something that their anxieties are really rising about. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.